This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Why Change podcast. I'm your co-host, Madeline McGurk, and I am here joined by Jeff Pillen. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Madeline. How are you, my friend? Good, thank you. Good. It is Monday, well, just early afternoon for me, so I'm coming off a super lovely weekend, actually. I've been dressmaking and sewing this weekend, so it is very, very rare that I make anything with my hands. And so, yeah, I'm feeling a bit like zen and happy at the moment. How? What have you been doing? You've been all over the place recently, right? Yeah, well, I had a crazy travel week, and then I feel like the month of August here is pretty settled, which is kind of nice. I'm on this, like, one crazy week a month, and then the rest is pretty normal, um, which is nice. But I kind of share with you, you know, I think both of us, our art forms are in the performing arts, generally. And I feel like the art that I was doing this past weekend was culinary in nature. So I did a lot of cooking and things like that, which, yeah, gave me that same sense of of grounding. Um, I think there's something about, yeah, making stuff with your hands that brings you in the present and really, you know, you see see the results of the work. It's really satisfying. What did you make? Oh, so many things. Um, (laughs) Well, because the goal of the weekend was actually to clear out the pantry and the freezer and so it was a smattering of different things from like (laughs) asian spring rolls to you know uh adobo chipotle grilled chicken nothing matched in its um you know cultural origins but it was all delicious and you know nothing went to waste which was the goal fresh herbs from the garden that were about to go like all the things it was it was great and i am Fat and happy on this Monday. We'll say that. Oh, nice. We have a name for that in the UK that you maybe remember, Nibbly Bits. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not one cohesive meal, but it's just a bunch of Nibbly Bits. And it's like the best, most satisfying dinner ever. You know, I think that's actually a really great um, way to talk, to think about the podcast. I feel like that's, what are the, the Nibbly Bits of like knowledge <laughs> that we get from these folks? Because that's where I feel we've had some fantastic guests the last couple of weeks and I feel like their nibbly bits if you will (laughs) of brilliance of wisdom have really actually been sticking with me this this last few um episodes I've been putting their their ideas right into practice which is so affirming it's kind of it's the same affirmation of making things with your hands in a way of that the application of new aha moments that you get it's just really great that was such a good segue. <laughs> I kind of agree, actually, because one of the nice things about this weekend when I was making things is it's not screens, right? And it's like you're just sort of mm-hmm. sitting, focusing on what's in front of you. And then before you know it, three hours is gone and you're like, whoa. Um, but what it does do is give you time to actually digest all the pieces of information or thoughts or speakers that you've heard. And I think you and I both have a privilege of speaking to so many great people 
but it's kind of you don't always get a chance to actually take it in yeah um and so I'm really happy that we had that I had that moment because well this interview we'll hear next with Michael Road is a great example of that where it's quite quick it's you know we go through it quite fast because Michael's a busy guy and we you know I wanted to get the most out of that moment Mm -hmm. but having time to sit and listen back and be like oh or like reflect was really really useful so yeah nice segue and with that being said shall I introduce this week's speaker yes please okay so I won't say too much about the interview because we're about to hear it but I sat down and chatted with Michael Road, who just does an amazing accumulation of work in different topics. Um, and I hope that you all enjoy. I will not try and reiterate it for you because he's about to way more eloquently. So enjoy. <laughs> Hello, hi, Michael, and welcome. And thank you so much for being here to talk to me for the Why Change podcast. I'm so pleased to be able to talk to you right now and hear more about your work. So welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Not at all. So to get started, I think the best thing is to just jump right in and hear a little bit about yourself. So can you tell the listeners a bit about you, where you are in the world right now, and explain the work that you primarily do. Yeah, so so my background is I'm a theater maker, and I've been doing that for for a while. Um, I'm 56, so I started working as a as a grown up in the late 80s, early 90s, and um, I spent most of the 90s on an organization I founded called Hope Is Vital which had me doing interactive theater workshops around the United States, where I was working with young people and adults to develop locally based ensembles that would then use participatory theater to to sort of act as a community resource around issues like HIV and AIDS, homelessness, um, uh, sexuality, homophobia, um, a lot of sort of issues that communities might be grappling with at that time. And we build an ensemble and material. And then when I left, they were kind of working in that way in the community. And I, I helped start up over a, a good part of the 90s, about 85 of those around the U.S. Uh, in different places. Um, and then I went back to grad school as a theater maker, focusing on directing and public dialogue. And I helped found a theater company called Sojourn Theater which is 23 years old now. We spent a bunch of our time in Fort Oregon or in the United States. Um, also helped found, oh, I can hear my dog in the back of me. Um, sorry, listen, our dogs are in crates right now. They're a little unhappy. Uh, I helped found an organization called Center for Performance and Civic Practice in 2012. And that was sort of part of my shift, not just to making art, but kind of putting a lot of my energy into helping build capacity in kind of arts context, but also in community development and local government context for how folks can collaborate across sectors, you know, as culture work for public good, different collaborative projects, different ways of kind of bringing artist process tools into different community processes. Um, So that's been a really big part of my life for the past decade or so. And I've also been a teacher for a really long time. 
So I taught at Northwestern in Chicago for a while, then at ASU, Arizona State University. And now about a year ago, I started the CoLab for Civic Imagination um, here at the University of Montana, where I live with my family. Um, and that work has been about looking at how students were trained in the arts across disciplines, but also students in areas like law and public health and education and community planning um, can all be thinking about how, again, culture work can contribute to lots of community outcomes and that artistic practice isn't limited to arts ecosystems or art sort of distribution and production kind of models and that work happening in community that generally historically thinks of the arts as like beauty and inspiration and reasons for gathering can actually look at arts and artists as contributors. So lots of process opportunities for problem solving, coalition building and community visioning. So now I spend a bunch of my energy um, as a maker, uh, also helping support capacity for a lot of those kinds of collaborations and an education setting, kind of helping folks think about how we can be building bridges for folks to work across sectors and disciplines really productively you know, while centering issues of uh, equity and participation and, um, and justice. Wow, you are so speaking my language. I don't know how much you know about it in the work that we do, but oh my goodness, capacity building and making the case for arts, like, arts outside of art silos is just a huge beast to try and tackle because it's so entrenched. And I feel like all of these areas that you're describing are so on the radar of things that I would place as just top priority right now for our whole sector. So that's really exciting. Um, and you mentioned a few different areas that you address or quite a few with health and identity and civic imagination and the role of the arts in those kind of spaces. And I wonder if you could talk a little or give an example of what that looks like for you or, or one of those projects and how that worked in practice. I think for anyone who's new to those concepts, an example is always super helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny when I when I think about this because I'm in my head is scrolling through like thirty years of of, um, of stuff. So I'll go to the most the I'll go to a current one, which is a collaboration that my collab is undertaking here where I am in Missoula, Montana, which is a city of about one hundred ten thousand. Um, so we've started a collaboration with the city parks and rec department. Uh, and also with the public health department. And it's really specific. So, you know, cities often undergo planning processes or strategic planning where they're trying to figure out how they're going to use their resources and what they're going to prioritize for the coming years. So here where I am in, in the American West, uh, a lot of cities and counties have a lot of parks properties, a lot of green space, a lot of um, programming, and they do a lot of resource allocation with community resources. So in this case, the city that I'm in, Missoula, hasn't done a, a strategic plan for their parks and rec department in 20 years. And um, I met the woman who runs the department, Donna, and she heard me talk a little bit about the work I was doing with connecting artists and community to different kinds of public good outcomes and processes. And she said, hey, so we have a history of doing clear planning processes here, but we often feel like we're missing communities or populations that are historically underrepresented and their voices are often not a part of our planning processes and the more and more our city sort of commits to equity the less and less appropriate it feels to do that kind of planning without those voices engaged so she said would you you know what do you think about there how might you work with us so i pitched her something that i would worked on before particularly in chicago 
which is where you identify what those communities or populations are, and then you work to identify artists in those communities or populations. You know, and for this for this podcast, you know, I you're certainly looking at teaching artists in those areas, but you're looking at practicing artists who have experience in any kind of collaborative and sort of community setting. You identify some of those artists and you seek which ones might be interested in getting paid to participate in some orientation, to design some arts workshops in their discipline, in their practice, but that they would also be willing to get paid to include in the design of their art session listening work. So that whatever their discipline is and whatever they're going to lead, a printmaking workshop, a digital storytelling workshop, a movement workshop, they're going to work with me and the Parks and Rec folks to identify a few core questions that the Parks and Rec department wants to learn about from the perspective of community members they might not hear from otherwise. So the artist is getting paid to orient, to design, to lead those workshops, and then to help debrief, synthesize and debrief what they learn back to the park staff so it can feed into the public engagement and planning process. So, you know, that's an example where I would say um, civic imagination is, which I define as the capacity for residents and local leaders to collaborate on imagining equitable and just futures that work for everyone. Uh, I think artists are really powerful um, mediators, um, connectors, navigators, and practitioners in that civic imagination space. So in this example, artists are sort of contributing participating in the civic imagination um, output, which is going to be these voices that then move into actual civic planning. Uh, and the artists are the linchpin of that and will get paid to do that work. Oh, that's amazing. And I have to ask, because I feel like it's so rare that you hear such willing come and help us from, from particularly government or policy places. How how difficult or easy was that for you to step in and make this case? It sounds like maybe they were kind of open-minded to this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, exactly what you're saying. I feel like making that case is something I, I think like you and a lot of people listening have been doing for me literally for 30 years, like making that case in different spaces. So I feel fairly fluent in the kind of ways I might try to make the case for a given audience, always trying to learn more and gather more data and have more stories. But I feel like I have a handle on um, where to start. Uh, and in this case, uh, I had reached out to this Parks and Rec director, Donna, when I arrived in town a year ago, because I was just doing the rounds and trying to meet people. And in those instances, and this is a recommendation I give to anyone doing this work, I didn't wait to go to her until I had a project idea or until I wanted funding. I went to her because I was new in the community. She runs Parks and Rec, which is a really important governmental space where residents, policy, and resources kind of meet. And I wanted to make sure she knew that I was thinking about ways maybe we could collaborate. I wanted her to hear from me how I thought it could be useful to her. She came back to me six months later and said, we're doing this planning process. You mentioned public engagement is what you're talking about maybe like a thing that could happen as we're trying to figure out this challenge working with and hearing from historically underrepresented voices and i said yes yes let's talk about that so it was the first meeting which was not a pitch meeting that did the first level of advocacy work then we could have a conversation about what was possible and that allowed us to sort of take the next step and certainly she is she was open you you might encounter someone in her role who after the first conversation forgot about it or had no interest or thought it was baloney. 
And that was not the case here. And if that was the case, six months later, I would have just done another reach out and tried to be letting that person know about other work happening locally now. But in this case, she was open. Wow. And you mentioned the sort of social issue side of things, the underserved communities and the absent voices. And then you also mentioned the systems, right? Like the parks and rec department and the resources and all of that. And I think one of the things that we often hear is, is toughest in positions like yours is kind of like brokering those and trying to understand how do you honor both because I think so often people feel systems are broken or they're not really the space for me and then you're sort of trying to do some repair work there to say they can be and here's how that might look and I wonder if you want to say anything about balancing those systems versus social issues versus all of that. I mean I guess the first thing that comes to my mind when you kind of pose that question is who does one center when one is trying to do the work of connecting and advocating for new practices? And, you know, if you're, if you're coming, if you're talking about um, values of equity or community or resident driven practice, then you have to center folks with the lived experience in the place where you're working, which by the way, partly includes park staff who are lifelong residents of this place and really believe in what they do. But it also includes certainly if we're trying to work with underserved or underrepresented communities, like being in dialogue and building a relationship in those spaces. And I think a couple of the starting places are, um, I, so I'm working with Parks and Rec, but now I'm also working with Arts Missoula, which is basically the Arts Council here, which has relationships with artists around the community, including in these spaces. So I brought them in as a partner and they're helping vouch me into some conversations with folks that I do not have existing relationships with as a new person here. And, you know, sometimes what we're doing is one of the populations that they identified is the NLGBTQIA plus community. So, you know, we start with the gay and lesbian community center. So it's not like, let's go find a random artist and see if we can engage them to represent that community. But who are the sort of leaders and advocates already representing that community in public discourse and local advocacy? And how do we start with a conversation with them to figure out how to respectfully engage this process with and on behalf of the government body, but also trying to be on behalf of and advocating for the folks that they represent? So by connecting with them first and getting recommendations for artists, and then meeting with artists through and with them, we're trying to sort of center the spaces and people's that, I mean, I'm I'm going to leave you in 12 minutes to have a conversation with the woman who runs All Nations, which is an urban Indian health center, because one of the populations is the indigenous people in this community. So the woman, Sky, who runs that center, has now had a couple of conversations with me as we're identifying artists and trying to figure out how respectfully parks could engage with that community, understanding the complexity of the multi-tribal backgrounds that people have in any urban Indian um, kind of context. So I think it's it's about not, one, not assuming an individual is enough or represents a space, but figuring out how do I respectfully engage with that community in ways that they are already publicly engaging, and how do I figure out how to be in service to them and put a pause on anything that doesn't feel appropriate or respectful to the folks whose voices lead that conversation from that place. Right. And I think what you're describing there is such a thoughtful and it sounds like researched approach, right? This isn't something you've just thought up yesterday. You said you've been doing this for 30 years, right? 
and you mentioned your career trajectory and, and coming through grad school and all the rest. Um, and I I feel like sometimes advocacy is like its own art form because you have to be yeah. so agile with who you're talking to and what you present based on that. And I wonder, was that something you intentionally built into your growth as an artist as well? Or did it come up naturally? Or or what? how did that grow alongside your artistic practice? Um, I'm not a great student. Um <laughs> Historically, like being a student is not my strong point. Although I went to school, and like you said, I, I went to grad school. So my journey of learning has more been from mentors and practice and apprenticing and observation and experience than it has been from sort of having a um, a, a research agenda. I don't have a PhD. I don't. I have like an MFA. I'm not like a. I'm not a scholar. Um, I'm a writer, but I'm but I'm not a scholar. So I think for me, the answer to your question is I got to work with and spend time around people like Augusta Boal, Dwight Conkergood, Paula Freire, um, Ping Chong, Barbara Cargyle, Robert Leonard, Ann Kilkelly, Carlton Turner, um, you know, amazing folks who have deep histories and lineages they come out of, as well as just sort of doing stuff when I really wasn't I did stuff that I really shouldn't have been like, I was too young probably and too inexperienced to be leading workshops in a, a homeless shelter with men and women living with HIV in 1992 in Washington, DC. But I was doing it because I was young and was like, I, I guess I can do this. I got asked to do it, so I'll do it. And made a lot of mistakes and did a lot of learning. And really the folks I worked with taught me as much or more than anyone about like what made good practice and what didn't. And, and then along the way, certainly, you know, writings of folks like Sweeney Madison and Adrian Louie Brown and um, a bunch of other folks, their scholarship has helped me kind of try to put up, Stephanie Etheridge Woodson has helped me kind of put ideas and framing and evidence to some of the stuff I've learned. But I think a lot of it has been walking alongside and behind and sort of learning and then doing Wow, that's amazing. I feel like there's a whole like hour long part two where I just want to ask you what that was like <laughs> to be around those people and to absorb that because that sounds unbelievable. Uh, super, super like, persistent at times to to build those relationships, but very lucky. And, you know, it was, this is, this is silly, but like when I started doing this work, there's no internet and there's no cell phones. And the, the difference between what, I and you can access now to learn about what's happening out there and to connect with people and build networks and to research uh, astounds me in terms of what we had to do just in the 80s and 90s just to figure out who was doing what and how can I learn from that? And it was it was a whole different thing. Yeah. Wow. I don't know why I've literally never considered that pre-internet before. That's I can't even, I can't even tell you like the uh, I mean, it took me a year and a half to track down a way to meet Paul and then start working with him. There was no website. There was no email. There was no way to sort of see his schedule. Um, yeah, it was a very, very different time in terms of figuring out how to gain access or try to be near and learn. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to need about another hour with you at some point to be like, and then what happened? <laughs> That's yeah, I, I love telling those stories. I was, yeah, it was amazing opportunities. Well, I'm conscious of time, so I won't, but oh my God, I want to. Um, 
And this next one's a hard question because you've done so yeah. much. Um, but if you had to pick just one project that you've been involved in that you are particularly proud of, either the process or product or any element, what what would that be and what and why? I'm gonna say one that was um a big learning project. I, I don't I don't know if it's the one I'm most proud of, but I'm proud of it. But feels like an example that's it's I like to share because it was big and ambitious and I think we accomplished some things and I also think we fell short. Um, so when our company was in Oregon in the early 2000s, we um, took on a project about public education uh, in, in, the, in Oregon, in the United States called the Witness Our Schools. And we spent a year and a half doing research and interviews. Um, and our desire was not just to, not just to make a touring play that we would pick the audiences, but you could intersect with really important conversations going on in that state at that time. So, so back then when we did this, um, there was a moment in Oregon's history, and if folks are listening to this and, and don't know U.S. Western geography much, Oregon is on the west coast of the U.S. It's the state north of um, California. Uh, it has a very striking um, split between a uh, sort of liberal part of the state, which is mostly urban, and a conservative part of the state, which is uh, rural and quite large. And that would play out at the state legislature in very intense ways. And in, I wanna say 2003, perhaps, the state legislature was deadlocked on a budget. They couldn't come up with a budget, particularly on what to spend on public schools for the coming year. And everybody was waiting with bated breath because there actually wasn't money to finish the school year. They were waiting on this session that kept going. And a legislator on the floor in the Capitol got so angry that they threw a stapler at the head of another legislator and hit them in the head. He drew blood and it was a chaos. And the state legislature immediately went into recess. They couldn't finish the session because it was so um, ridiculous. And as a result, the public schools in the whole state closed four weeks early. So everybody went home. Teachers didn't get paid, students didn't finish their school year. Students buried did a week of strips on the absurdity of it, actually. Um, so we had already been making a show and we shifted gears because we basically every couple of years would make a touring show, tour around the state. And one of our board members who worked for the Department of Ed said, you really don't have a choice. You can't do anything other than make a show about this because this is what everyone needs to be talking about right now. So we spent a year and a half building it and then we toured it for um, nine months. So every Sunday for nine months, we were in a different community around the state with a free 2 p.m. Uh, performance. That was a 65-minute choreographic kind of interview-based um, devised show, followed by a 90-minute town hall dialogue, which was also filled with improvisation and facilitation, uh, almost like a version of a, of a TIE kind of session, but it was with local politicians, it was with parents, students, teachers. So we used the play as a catalyst for then the experience of this public forum that was theater-based. Um, and that grew, the presence of it grew in the state conversation until by April, we were invited to perform it on the floor of the Capitol where that incident had happened a couple of years before. So legislators saw the show and we were able to deliver what we've been learning through the dialogues to legislators as a part of that visit. Um, and we became part of the conversation around the state with reform organizations. And part of it was that we brought a lot of different contradictory and antagonistic voices into the play and then welcomed them into the space and just tried to make dialogue where we could find some common ground 
on what people wanted to see the role of public education being in their communities and how they wanted to resource that. And that that project was a bit of a template for me going forward in terms of some of the ways we built networks, some of the ways we thought about theater as catalyst for conversation. Um, that was a yeah, that, so that's something I'm proud of, but but also just had a lot of learnings for me that I'm still impacting and still learning from, even as I work on a project about mental health in the state right now. So That's amazing. And I feel like you can hear the influences of those people you mentioned studying alongside coming through in that story so strongly, too. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. I think so. Amazing. Well, I know we have to wrap up in a second. Um, and to do that, we always end with a few quick fire questions just to help people think through and unpack things that you've said a little more. So if you don't mind, I am going to jump right in and ask you a couple and just the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, yeah. Okay, so who inspires you? Um, my family. Um, uh people who are doing grassroots work uh, every day that is not really in the spotlight, but are making a massive um, difference in the spaces they're in, particularly schools and health contexts. Um, artists who I've you know, watched across my lifetime and continue to do amazing work. Those are some of the people that inspire me. And what keeps you motivated? Um, trying to be useful. Um, and uh, not complacent or complicit. And where are you most grounded? With my family. And how do you stay focused? I try to stay, uh, I try to have a sense of what tasks need to get done to keep different things moving forward. And I try not to think about all the reasons everything will fail too much. And finally, why change? Because the way things are doesn't work for most people, and therefore change is necessary. And because at a cellular, biological, existential level, change is happening anyway. So we have to engage with it. Otherwise, we're actually not alive. Well, thank you so, so much. I think this is one of those chats that could have been like three hours long. So maybe the time constraint was an enabling one. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're super busy, so it was great to hear from you. And I'm just yeah grateful for the conversation and grateful to be a part of the really big community that your podcast represents and that your work kind of continues to help push forward. And if you want to talk again sometime, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. Well, with that being said, I'll say a massive final thank you. And I can't wait to share this with everyone. So thank you again, Michael. Thank you very much, Michael. Take care. Okay, this is a big one, right? That covers a lot. So, Jeff, what were your takeaways? You are entirely right. It There was a, so much that was covered from Michael's career trajectory and his work today, some examples of really strong practice and some of these kind of theoretical notions of just approaches to the work and, and our practice um, as as teaching artists, as um, civic imaginators, is that a word? Mm -hmm. um, that I, that really stuck with me. And I think resoundingly is this notion of Michael's practice of 
arts as part of civic imagination and the role of art artists and culture bearers and creativity within things like civic design and city planning and parks and recreation and things like that. Um, it really just, it stands out to me because it's often what people talk about a lot in theory, but don't actually move to or, or only really try to scratch the surface um, in practice. And so it's very commendable, the work that he's been doing for 30 years of, of truly embedding in, in these spaces. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that struck me too, was like how widely talked about things like civic imagination or arts and civic spaces are, but then how complex and difficult that actually is as its own practice that can be applied in those spaces, teaching artistry married with institutions, married with social justice and social issues, and trying to tackle all of that, respecting all partners and honouring all the needs but actually also moving things forward and not just getting bogged down in all the technical specifications that need to be met. Mm -hmm. And I think I said that to him, to Michael, but it's like, it seems like its own art form to me, being able to balance all these partnerships and do it so, so it feels authentic to everyone involved yeah. is such a, a weaving of different threads together that it seems kind of amazing to me that anyone can do this for that long so successfully. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, rarely did Michael, one of the things I picked up on was rarely did Michael ever really talk about arts and culture or artists only in the context of he was speaking with you representing, a, you know, a network of teaching artists. But it's it's actually a thing that I've been grappling with a lot. And this sounds sort of silly, but here at Creative Generation, we've been um, naming our research practice, which for five years has toggled between traditional quantitative and qualitative research methods and quote-unquote non-traditional or arts-based often education research and um we've we've named it and we'll be releasing some stuff more about it but it's interesting because we talk about the application and the words that we've landed on are narrative perspective and imagination nothing about an art for you know we're not saying theater or poetry or music or dance because I think so often those are the vehicles, those are the practices that get us to the actual thing that we're doing in some of these spaces, like civic spaces. And so I, I love that Michael's talking about imagination, because that's something that when you're working in different systems, like city planning, for example, artists are the vehicle and they use their practice. And he named that, that they can use their own discipline and whatever, but it's towards that goal of the shared imagination of all stakeholders, no, no matter who it is, young people, adults, um, visitors, longtime residents, uh, you know, what have you. And that imagination is what brings people together. And that power is in that shared imagination and the application within the civic, civic civil society, if you will. And that to me is, that vernacular to me is actually really important because, I mean, we know this when people say, oh yeah, we're going to do an opera workshop. 70% of people tap out, like that's not for me. Mm -hmm. And I think if we say we're actually going to imagine together, that's much more accessible and builds those bridges. Be, you know, you become that broker between sectors and systems and, and things like that, which is another thing that I actually wanted to talk about because you talked, you named it in your interview about balancing systems work while authentically engaging with social issues. And Michael named practice as being the bridge. 
and it was interesting because I got in my head for a minute thinking about, well, of course, our artistic practices, teaching artists, you know, is the bridge in between these these really complex, you know, scenarios that we're working in. And then he went on to talk and immediately countered the thought process that was going in my head because he was actually talking about the, the practice of the civic planners in this case <laughs> and not about arts-based anything. And I had an aha moment where I realized so often in our work, especially those socially engaged artists or community-based artists, teaching artists that are trying to work in other sectors, there's an assumption that we have that the practice of that other sector is stagnant and immovable. When in reality, the same way that our arts-based practices are evolving every single day as we continue to learn and grow and experience more in the world, so are the other folks. And so perhaps we could like maybe lower that wall that we immediately build in between us and say, actually, you know, we're on this journey together and let's exchange and learn from each other. And it, I think I developed a little thought in my head of like, what could I, the next time I'm talking to someone from another sector, what's one, I'm going to commit to like learning one thing from what they do and apply it in my work. Because so often I get stuck in that, well, here's how you can apply creativity in your work, or here's how you can mm. use the arts in your work. And I never think like, oh, what can I take from their work in science or healthcare or, you know, planning or whatever and apply it in mine, which yeah. I, was a, it was a moment for me. Oh, well, that's amazing. Because I feel like that kind of ties into this being its own art form, right? Because with mm -hmm. partnerships, we hope that you're learning and you're growing together and you're collaborating and all the rest. But you're right. I think it's so often we think of that in artistic collaborations. But so often when it's cross-sector, I think we think like, oh, we'll come in and shake things up and you're welcome. <laughs> you yeah. know? But it's, I think, I hope that people can really do exactly what you're saying and you know take a leaf from Michael's book and kind of build in that oh no it's an evolution collectively and that's the only way the problem gets solved but that's also how he described the bridge building and the sort of system social issues addressing both but not letting go of either's needs and and keeping it authentic and I think that probably only happens with that really open what do you have to share with me what can I share with you Mm -hmm. But you're right, when it's not arts-based or it's not spoken about in arts-based terms, I think that's a really easy thing to like glitch over in your mind. Yeah. And, you know, and he specifically called out the need to center, you know, those most impacted and those with knowledge that's not, you know, already at the table. And I think that if we approach it with that, you know, evolutionary <laughs> method that you were just describing, that's the first way to really engage in that authentic process of centering those most impacted. Because, you know, immediately when we start talking about arts-based work or we start topic talking about these, you know, really high level, um, you know, strategic plan of a city and things like that, you're automatically excluding a bunch of people who have wonderful ideas, but like just because of like the framing or the language or whatever, it feels super inaccessible and they don't want to participate and they self-select out. And so making that intentional choice towards inclusion and belonging and all of the the goals that we often set forward with of centering those folks, we can actually achieve it. And it does take that, um, the setting aside of our artistic privilege, if you will, and the kind of refocusing on authentic engagement that that will really make 
the difference, um, in my opinion. Yeah, and I will say in terms of making the difference, one thing, I mean, I talk about this all the time, but I feel like the the cross-sector approach mm-hmm. is so necessary for the for teaching artistry and for where we're going in the future and for not siloing ourselves into this sort of niche workforce that gets called in sometimes it's like no we have such a massive contribution that we can make when it's done thoughtfully in different spaces and I Mm -hmm. think this work that Michael's doing and this I mean massive breadth of work he's been doing for 30 odd years is such a hopeful example to me of like it can happen it is scalable it can work in these different spaces we just need to adjust the language and how we're framing it and look for those like-minded people that he mentioned in those departments who are like seeking out that change don't know quite what it's called and then there's all these teaching artists seeking out these spaces and don't quite know where they are and it's just such a a rich area that I Mm -hmm. I really hope we can manage to tap and scale and that's certainly a mission I'm on and have been for a while but it's it's a really nice refreshing story to hear about it going well for a long period of time. Yeah absolutely and I think Michael's career trajectory too you know talking about 30 years he he talked about his work with Sojourn Theatre and you know um, his his academic studies you know resulting in an MFA and things like that but the thing that I really loved um, is that he was developing this body of work and was very honest about, you know, he was in spaces when he maybe shouldn't have been and things didn't go as planned. And he learned from that. And that was all part of his, his learning and, and cultivation of his practice, which is something that super resonates with me. And and I know in our work supporting young mm-hmm. leaders <laughs> together with the Young and Emerging Leaders Forum and things like that, it's a, a vital, a vital story to hear. But also, I just found it interesting, and this is my only sort of light critique, you know, with a little bit of jest to Michael, is that, you know, he said, well, I'm not a, I'm not a very good student, but here are all the ways that I continuously learn and grow my practice, <laughs> which is just funny, because I think that yeah. that's something that we all, especially teaching artists, you know, we get into that space where we're the educator, and then we say, oh, no, you know, we're not, like, I haven't, like, studied in the way that I'd want to, or, you know, I'm I'm not a, you know, I wasn't a straight-A student in, in traditional methods of um of courses of study and things but at the end of the day that's actually part of our artistic practice is that continued evolution and that um continuous improvement and continued learning and you know just the amount of of people that he was like oh well this person influenced my work and that one and that one and that one and that one and there's less like 40 of them and that's tremendous and that's a big lesson for me is that especially as we build a practice and codify it and articulate it well and demonstrate its impact that we are always continuously evolving and responding to the needs of people and responding to our communities and of course in the last three years you know there's been no greater lesson than the need for that but Mm. that was that was for me the affirmation of his story was one of yeah this is how it's supposed to go um and people should take note that it's not like you go and you get your phd and then you know bing bang boom you're done we're always learning we're always growing yeah and I think that's so true because all of these issues that we encounter so often are when people or institutions or whatever have stopped mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've gone no no we we did this we came up with this 20 years ago so now that's what we do 
and then now we encounter them right and we're like well that's not quite good enough it's not quite right anymore it doesn't really serve in the things that maybe you thought it was 20 years ago and I think that's it is the exact the moment people choose to stop trying to evolve or things stop growing and being responsive is the moment that yeah they stagnate and need need some teaching artists to come in and help shake things up a bit, <laughs> and now we've gone full circle around <laughs> the bend no you know but it is interesting because that also was one of the big findings I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the findings of my own research and my own practice as I mentioned you know we're trying to um, articulate you know our different research approaches and um and even just going back I reread like the initial paper that really predicated our meeting back in Germany in 2019 or whatever um, about the concept of the creative generation and our findings. And one of those big findings is that when we don't have ongoing communities of practice, the, the practices that were once revolutionary stagnate and we need those knowledge exchanges and learning environments and abilities to share and to go all the way full circle back to our the start of our conversation Having that time to connect with peers, listen to them, be it synchronously like this or asynchronously through a podcast interview that you listen to or what have you, and actually carve out that moment to process and pick out the big lessons that you want to use, that's essential. And so part of me is like, how do we start a little campaign for teaching artists to say, listen, as part of your work, carve out an hour a week to talk to a peer. That could be going to a workshop, that could be calling someone on the phone, it could be listening to a podcast and then journaling about it. I don't, I don't know, you know, but there's an element of this that's really essential. If we want to do the big things like cultivate spaces of civic imagination and infiltrate city government agencies and do cross-sector work on health and well-being and city planning and youth development and whatever, then we also need to take those moments for ourselves to learn and grow and reflect and and evolve that practice because yeah I I I think about the opportunity cost if we don't and we mm. stagnate you know all this work is is for naught well I feel like you have set me up perfectly so I cannot not plug a tax in right now after you said all of that so for anyone who doesn't know there will be a three-day conference in New Zealand in September 2024 where we invite teaching artists from all over the world to join us for the conference to do exactly this, right? To think through practice together, to share knowledge, approaches, everything and anything, and see how it's done in different parts of the world, network, advocate for ourselves, all that good stuff. So more details are coming soon, but I just feel like after such a, a hearty endorsement of networks of practice, I cannot not mention next year's conference. So for anyone who thinks that sounds worth doing, I hope to see you in New Zealand next year. I, yeah, I will be there. There's no question about that. I fully plan to attend. And on that same vein, too, I just want to give a little shout out to the newest cohort members of the Young and Emerging Leaders Forum, Yay. which I mentioned earlier, which is a joint project hosted by um, ITAC and Creative Generation. And we have some 46 amazing leaders from all around the world. We'll drop the link in the show notes so you can read more about them and what they'll be doing over the next year. But they're great. And the future is really bright with these growing communities of practice of teaching artists that are just doing incredible stuff from Michael Road to the next generation of leaders at Yelf. And hopefully everyone will be together 
in Auckland uh, next year. Well, with that being said, I feel like that's a really hopeful place to end this week's episode. So um, with that being said, Jeff, thank you so, so much for mulling this all over with me, for giving your thoughts on that chat with Michael. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. And we look forward to connecting with you next time. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. All sources discussed in this episode are located in the show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, you can write us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. This episode was produced by Madeline McGurk. The executive editor is me, Jeff M. Poulin. Our artwork is by Bridget Woodbury. Our editor is Katie Rainey. This podcast theme music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support. <laughs>